Are you doing Jess? You're right there. You got a signal. Uh, so there's some notes going to come up um, on the screen as well, which uh, I'll send to you this week. But as you know, we are considering the resurrection. We are looking at the, the absolute hope that we have uh, in the resurrection of Jesus as Christians and what that means. And so last week I had a brief look with you just to get an overview from the Old Testament and the New Testament, just how the Old Testament views death and resurrection and how the New Testament points to that in some of the things that Jesus did in His miracles and what He preached to help us understand something of what He was coming to do. But what I want to consider with you this morning is this very simple statement. Is belief in the resurrection, is it a solid rock on which we can stand? And I'd like to um, uh, hopefully help you see some things this morning that will help you in terms of how you witness to other people. Because I, I find it frustrating that sometimes when I speak to people, um, uh, they can have this attitude that Christians are somehow very dull people who don't think very much, and they've, um, and they've accepted these kind of superstitions from the past, and they've built these, these, uh, their lives around these, these superstitions. And uh, that really irritates me, <laughs> because actually... Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. Our lives are not built on superstition. Our lives are built uh, on a historical facts. And, uh, and I want to point you this morning to a number of things that we can know to be true about the resurrection. And what you choose to do with the information is, is up to you. But there are some things that historically uh, we can uh, agree on and historians agree on. And I want to point you to these things this morning. But I'd like to start by imagining a particular scenario, okay? Imagine we went onto the Hatfield campus or we went up to St. Albans this morning uh, onto the high streets and we did a little uh, survey and we asked people about what they believed in terms of whether they believed there was a God or not or did they believe there was anything outside of what we see that is a supernatural kind of influence uh, on the world. And I'm sure that you would get a variety of responses. But uh, I'm, I'm equally convinced some, some would say, well, there's no God, don't have any belief in any kind of uh, supernatural being. But I'm fairly convinced that the majority of people would say something like this. There are many ways to God, and uh, these many ways to God are expressed through all the different religions that you find in the world. And uh, I'm fairly convinced also that people would give that as, as an answer and say, yep, believe in God, but you know, there's many ways to God and you can believe whatever you want and in, in the end you, you, will, you will get to God. And I'm fairly convinced also that people would say that the Christian claim that Jesus is God and God has revealed himself to us in Jesus, they would say that's exclusive. I'm fairly convinced people would say that. And this is what I'm really talking about is a very typical attitude of pluralism. This is the technical word for what people believe uh, mostly these days. Pluralism. Most people will agree, are happy to agree, that some kind of God might exist, but it's become politically incorrect in our community and in our world to claim that uh, God has re revealed Himself decisively in Jesus. Uh, you can say there's many ways to God, but don't say that God has revealed Himself decisively in Jesus. And so I want to look at this question this morning. I could put it like this. What justification do we have as Christians, in contrast to Hindus or Jews or Muslims, 
in saying that the Christian God is real, the God that we believe in, the God that we worship is real, what justification do we have in saying that? And so I'm going to answer that question this morning. And there are many other people that have done that in the past. Uh, people like Josh McDowell, who wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, people like Ravi Zacharias, uh, Alistair McGrath, C.S. Lewis, amongst others. All of these guys are, are, are brilliant people that have written about uh, these things for many, many years. So I've learned some of these things from these guys. And in particular, I want to uh, use a, uh, a guy called William Lane Craig this morning, who's an American guy. As we think about this question together, uh, we can learn from some of these things that these people have, have said. So we're going to try and attempt to answer this morning, what can we, justification can we offer as Christians in contrast to the other faiths of the world to people to say that the God that we worship is real? Well, I want to simply put it to you like this. The answer that the New Testament gives us is the resurrection. That's the answer of the New Testament to this profound question. And Acts 17.31 says this, God will judge the world with justice by the man that he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So very simply, the New Testament answers and says, well, it all hinges on the resurrection. And Paul, um, uh, Luke writes in Acts and says that the proof of this is that Jesus has been risen from the dead. And so in a real sense, as Christians, Christians believe that the resurrection, the thing that we are thinking about over these next weeks, uh, rising up to East, um, leading up to Easter, is really God's vindication of all the claims that Jesus made about His, his divinity. And uh, the, the resurrection claims that all those things are true because Jesus uh, rose from the dead. So how then, how do we know that Jesus did rise from the dead? Can we be sure of that? Uh, well, in one sense, on one level, there's a very easy answer. I don't know when um, I grew up in, the, in a Methodist home, a Methodist tradition, and uh, we used to sing around Easter time an old hymn. I don't know if you know it, and I'm going to embarrass myself by showing how old I am. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Did you ever used to sing that song? He walks with me and he talks with me. And then, then the, the, cor the chorus says, you ask me how I know he lives he lives within my heart. Did you ever used to sing that song? So on one level, is a very e easy answer. How do we know that Jesus lives? Well, Christians will say, well, I know he lives because he's living within me. And on one level, that's perfectly acceptable. That's a very, very um, justified point of view uh, to say something like that. It's perfectly appropriate on an individual level. But I also put it to you, on another level, if we want to engage with unbelievers... In a public place, so for example, if you write a letter to a newspaper or you phone into a radio show or simply you are talking to your mates, talking to your friends at work, you need to be able to present objectively some evidence in support of what you believe. Must be able to do that as well. Otherwise, if we, don't, we aren't able to do that, what simply happens is that your claim is just seen as a private experience with God along with everybody else's private experiences of God. Isn't that true? So, oh, that's great that you believe that. Let me tell you what I believe. And your, kind of ex your, your view of, of what God has done in Christ is, is just put alongside everyone else's experience. You know, I had experience as a Druid, and that's equally as valid as your experience as a Christian. This is the kind of society that we have grown up 
in and we experience. And so I say to you that it's critical for all of us that we can, in an objective way, say, well, look, no, I don't think everything is equal, and this is why I believe objectively in what I believe. Are you with me? And I hope that this will give you some tools in, in terms of sharing your faith with other people. And fortunately, fortunately, Christianity is a faith that is rooted in history. And it makes claims that can be investigated historically. And for me, that is vitally important. That we can objectively look at history in terms of what we believe as Christians and point to a number of things and point others to those same things and say, this is why I believe what I believe. And so I'll, I'll put it to you this morning. Let's, let's try for the next 15, 20 minutes. Let's not assume that the Scripture is inspired. As Christians, we believe that, that, that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God. But let's assume that it's not. Let, let's assume that it's simply a collection of Greek documents that have come down to us uh, through history, and we don't make any assumptions about their, their reliability other than the, how we would view any other historical documents. All right? So we're going to treat the, 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 this morning, we, we're going to treat the, the New Testament like that. It's just another historical document that has come down through, uh, through the writings of people, uh, translated into, from Greek into English, and we're going to investigate it on the basis of how everybody else um, views historical documents. All right? So, you might be surprised to know this, but the majority of New Testament critics investigating the Gospels accept some simple facts about the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to emphasize this morning, I'm not talking about evangelical believers. I'm not talking about conservative scholars. I'm talking about a broad spectrum of, uh, of people in universities that study history and study uh, the, the Bible as a historical document in secular universities. I'm, I'm talking about people that have a serious uh, interest in the, in the history of the Bible, what these people would all claim to believe about the resurrection. So I'm not just talking about Christians. Are you with me? I want to emphasize that. And there are four basic facts that historians and scholars that study the Bible, there are four basic things that they would accept about the resurrection. Here's the first one. We're going to just look at four facts together. First of all, after his crucifixion, after he was crucified on the cross, Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried in a tomb owned by a man called Joseph of Arimathea. Now, historians all agree on this fact, all right? Joseph, we know from Mark, it says he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he took Jesus, the body of Jesus, and buried Jesus in a tomb that he owned. Um, and this is very significant because it means a number of things. It means that the tomb, the site of the tomb of Jesus, was known both to Christians, those that believed in him, and to Jews, because it was Joseph's tomb. So they all knew where the tomb was, Right? And that's very significant. It's, it is significant because it, because it means that the disciples could have never proclaimed that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead if the tomb had not been empty. Because simply what would have happened, everyone knew where the tomb was, so they would have just gone and had a look to see for themselves if the tomb was empty. That's very important. And so uh, the, 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 the uh, scholars have, have had a look at this, and, and they have... Um, they have 
cited a couple of reasons why they believe the burial of Jesus is a fact of history. And uh, here, here are a number of, of justifications that you can see on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, I delivered to you as a first, import, first importance what I received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, there Paul says it, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared to Peter, or Cephas, and then to the twelve. Now, why scholars are really interested in this portion of Scripture is because it seems to be a little bit like a formula. It seems to be something that Paul is quoting. He uses a phrase that rabbis used to use often when they taught people, what I've received, I give unto you. This is a, this is a, a rabbinical phrase. What I received, I give unto you. So he's passing on this information, writing to the Corinthian church, but it seems to be a stylized kind of way of saying it. And we know that because when we look at Paul's language in other, in other parts of the Scripture, he doesn't normally speak like this. He doesn't normally use this kind of Greek in this, in, in this portion. So he seems to be quoting something to them. He seems, seems to be saying to the Corinthian church, What I received, this I am passing on to you. And he says it in the following way. He says uh, that, he was, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So He uses this kind of phrase uh, that seems to be a quote. And we know that uh, it probably goes back at least to the first five years after Jesus was died, uh, Jesus was crucified. Because in about AD 36, Paul, we know, he went to Jerusalem and he, sp he spent two weeks with, with Peter and James, we know that from Galatians chapter 1. So quite soon after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead, um, Paul had gone to Jerusalem after his amazing conversion experience to find out from the apostles all they knew about Jesus. So within five years of Jesus being crucified and rising from the dead, Paul has gone to Jerusalem. And so it seems to, to me that you can hardly say that the burial of Jesus was a story that the disciples invented and it grew into a legend that Christians now believe. It was only five years after the event that Paul had gone and met with those that had witnessed the event. That's the first thing that scholars would say. The second thing they would say is this, is that the burial story, the story of Jesus being buried by um, Joseph of Arimathea, is very old source material used by Mark, who writes the first gospel. And uh, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that something of Jesus, um, his, his story of his life, is not a, it's not arranged chronologically. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that sometimes things are put in a different order. It's like a, a snapshot of Jesus' life. It gives us an overview of his life as these four uh, writers are commenting on the life of Jesus and saying who Jesus is. And there's a connection in, in them, but it's not always a, chronic, a chronological connection. But when we come to the story of what we call the Passion, which is the run-up to what happened with the crucifixion of Jesus, the story of His trial, the fact that He was crucified, the, the, the resurrection story. When we reach that part, all of the Gospels are exactly the same. So when it comes to that story, we know exactly in all four Gospels, it's told in exactly the same way. 
What we think about that is that actually that's because Mark's gospel was the first gospel that was written, and all the other gospels used Mark as a source for their, their, their versions, and Matthew and Luke and John are comments on the basic story that was told by Mark. That's what most people would agree on. And so that implies, um, when we read, when we read uh, in Mark, that what Mark says is that the burial account was part of this, this story. It's consistent, and we know that Mark was the first gospel written very soon uh, after Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And again, it stands against a story saying that the burial story is just like a legend that grew, because it, it doesn't coincide with the timing. These things happened very quickly after Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you with me? And the third thing that scholars would say about this first point, about Jesus being buried, is that um, Joseph of Arimathea is, is unlikely to be someone who was invented by Christians. We know in 1 Thessalonians 2, for example, there's a strong resentment against Jew Jewish leadership for their role in condemning Jesus to death. For, uh, and, and Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 and says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed us all mankind. It's, uh, so it's very unlikely, very unlikely, highly unlikely, that Christians would invent someone called Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the court that condemned Jesus and who then honored Jesus by burying him in a tomb that he owned instead of just dismissing him as a common criminal. It's very unlikely that Christians would have invented this person. Very unlikely. That's the third reason that we can be confident that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. The fourth reason is, is that there's no competing burial story. If what happened was, wasn't true, if Joseph didn't bury Jesus, then surely you would expect to find some other trace in history of what actually happened. What did happen to Jesus' body? Surely there would be a competing story, different versions of what happened to Jesus' body. But all the sources that we have, all the historical sources that we have, are unanimous on this honorable burial of Jesus by this man called Joseph. It's the only burial story. And so for these reasons that I've just given you, the majority of historians that study the book of the Bible and New Testament critics all agree, concur, if you like, that Jesus was buried in a tomb owned by a man called Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, there's a guy called uh, A.T. Robinson, a scholar from Cambridge who died recently. He says this, about the burial of Jesus in the tomb. It's one of the earliest and best attested facts of history about Jesus. The fact that he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? Second fact that we can agree on. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty. It was found empty and was found empty by a group of women that followed him. That's the second fact that historians agree on. And among the reasons uh, that they give for this, I'm going to mention a couple. Well, it's, it's obvious from what I've said about Mark, uh, the source material of Mark, that the empty tomb story is part of that uh, material that we see in the Gospel of Mark. 
And Mark's story doesn't end with the death and defeat, in a sense, of, of Christ on the, on, on the cross, but it ends with the empty tomb, which, which when you look at the grammar of the story, you look at the, how the language flows, it's one piece written all together. And so for that reason, scholars say, yep, it's part of, it's part of the story. Uh, the, the source that I've quoted uh, in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we, we, we read it just now, it, 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 in, in the same way, it implies that the tomb was found empty. It says, on the third day, the woman came and they found the tomb empty. And so that's very significant. The story is very simple. It doesn't have any embellishment. It simply says these women went and found the tomb empty. And there are other Gnostic accounts. There are other apocryphal uh, writings that come up with very spectacular versions of what happened. And one of the um, apocryphal gospels says that um, Jesus came out of the tomb with his head reaching up above the clouds. And behind him came out of the tomb a cross that was talking. To the woman. These are fantastical inventions. These are, are, are obviously embellishments. And so scholars say, well, we can agree on Mark's version. Mark's version is simple. It's true. It seems to be not embellished in any way. And the most compelling thing about the fact that the tomb being found em empty, the most compelling thing by far is that it was, it was discovered by a group of women. And now we find this quite strange. But uh, in, in, in ancient culture, the testimony of, of women was not considered to be worthy of a, a court of law. So if you were trying to make a case for something, you would not have women as your first witnesses. And this is what um, uh, there's a, a, Jew, a Jewish historian called Josephus. And um, he, he says in his writings that the, the testimony of woman was regarded as so worthless that it would not be even admitted into a court of law run by Jewish counsel. Why, if you're trying to invent a story, <laughs> why then would you choose as your prime witnesses women that in a court of law, of Jewish law, their testimony wouldn't even be acceptable. Why, why, if, you were, if you were inventing the story, you would have some male witnesses to actually witness the story. Because then they would have credibility in a court. And so that's another reason that um, scholars are confident that actually this was, the story as we read it is true. Because it's so, so unlikely that someone inventing the story would have female witnesses. Fifthly, the Jewish allegation that the disciples had stolen the body, and we know that from uh, Matthew 28, verse 15, it actually confirms that the body was missing, doesn't it? <laughs> of course it does. The, 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 the Jewish, the Jewish uh, response to uh, Jesus is risen from the dead was not to point to the, uh, the, the tomb and to laugh them off as fanatics and say, look, you're crazy, the body's still there. Of course he hasn't risen from the dead. They didn't do that. What did they say? They said, oh no, you came and stole the body. That's the earliest accusation that uh, we have recorded of what, how the Jews responded. So there we have evidence that the tomb was empty from the very people that were opposing Jesus from the very uh, beginning, the, opposing the early Christians. The Jewish testimony was the temple was, in fact, empty. So these are two facts now we have. Jesus was buried, 
We can agree on that. Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, was found empty by a group of women, and the Jewish testimony proves that. Thirdly, on many occasions, uh, multiple occasions, in various circumstances in the, in the New Testament, different individuals and groups of people experienced Jesus risen from the dead. And you can read again in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, there's a whole list that Paul gives of these individuals that uh, experienced Jesus, uh, the parents of Jesus. Uh, it says, first he appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to five hundred, to James. It says all these, lists all these people. And again, we know, as I've said to you already, this is the oldest, one of the oldest sources that we have uh, in, in terms of the story. And not only that, but what is very important is that these things are all independently confirmed. So, for example, the appearance of Christ to Peter is confirmed by Luke. And the appearance of the twelve is confirmed by both Luke and John. We have independent witnesses to Jesus appearing to people in Galilee, in Mark, in Matthew, and John, as also when he appeared to the woman in Matthew and John. All of these appearances are independently confirmed by different witnesses. And that's one of the most important marks of historicity and, and making sure that something is historically accurate. How many people saw it? Were they independent witnesses? And does their story, story confirm what happened? And so it is, uh, th this certainly does confirm that many people did witness Jesus alive after he rose from the dead. And then there are other things that point to the accuracy of, of um, these appearances. For example, uh, we have evidence from the Gospels that none of Jesus' brothers believed that he was the Messiah while he was alive. Now, he had some brothers. He had a brother called James, and he had some others that were, were part of the family. And they didn't believe in, in him as Messiah while he was alive. But what is indisputable from the, from the Gospels and from other sources is that his brothers did actively become Christian believers following his death and his resurrection. So his brother James, for example, became a founding member and apostle of the church in Jerusalem, and he rose to lead that church. And Josephus, again, um, a, a, a Jewish historian, confirms that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed for his faith in Christ in AD 60, around AD 60. So about 30 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, his brother becomes uh, a martyr because he believes that his brother, Jesus, is indeed the Messiah. How many of you here have brothers? I have two. Yeah, a whole bunch of us have brothers. Um, what can I ask you a question? What would it take you to convince? What would it take to convince you that your brother was in fact the Messiah? A miracle. And would it perhaps? Uh, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Messiah and that you were ready to die for believing that your brother was the Messiah? It would only be something miraculous. So I put it to you that this remarkable transformation that happened in the life of James and his brothers is summarized in Paul's words when he says, then Jesus appeared to James. That can only be the reason 
that James had this radical transformation, not believing in his brother as the Messiah, and then suddenly believing in his brother who was the Messiah, and believing to such an extent that he paid with it for his own life 30 years later. He, he was martyred for what he believed. That can only be because there was a remarkable transformation in his view of what happened. And uh, there's a guy called Gert uh, Daemann who's a, a German guy. He's actually a critic of the, of the resurrection, but he himself, he, he writes this and admits this himself. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. <laughs> so he's a skeptic, but even he admits, well, they must have had some kind of appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. You still with me? One more. The fourth thing that uh, historians agree on is that the original disciples started to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. Despite having every other reason not to believe it, they believed it. Why, why do I say that? Well, first of all, to think about it. The, the leader, their leader, Jesus, was dead. And Jewish people did not have a theology uh, of, of dying, much less of a dying Messiah, much less of a rising Messiah. That, that wasn't in their theology. Their Messiah, a Jewish Messiah, was supposed to throw off all of Israel's enemies, in other words, Rome. He's supposed to deliver them from Rome. He was supposed to reestablish the, the, the line of David as a king. That's what the Messiah was supposed to come and do. That's what, Jesus were, uh, that's what uh, Jews were waiting for. They did not, they, in, in their view, the, the, their Messiah shouldn't suffer such a, igno a, a distasteful death. That means the Messiah surely couldn't suffer the death of a criminal crucified on a cross. In fact, according to the Jewish law in, in Deuteronomy, the execution of Jesus as a criminal on the cross proved that he must have been a heretic, because that's what the Scripture said. The Scripture said all those that are heretics will be crucified on a cross, literally under the curse of God, Deuteronomy 21, 23. It was a catastrophe <laughs> that Jesus was crucified. And so these are the, these are the, the disciples after, after the crucifixion of Jesus. Their master is dead. Their master is gone. Uh, the crucifixion showed, in effect, that according to to what the Pharisees had said, they must have been right all along, uh, and that for three years, perhaps, they'd been following, following this man who actually was proved to be a heretic in the way that he was killed. That's what they would have thought as Jewish believers. And also, further on from that, uh, the, ways that, the, the, the way that the Jewish people um, viewed the resurrection was that actually on the at the end of time, we looked at this last week, on that day, that day, or the day of, of judgment, w there would be resurrection from the dead. Not before. They believed that. That's what Jewish theology believed. And so the best that the, the disciples would have been hoping for was to keep Jesus' bones in a shrine until that day when all of those that were righteous would be, would be uh, raised from the dead in glory. So despite all of those things, the disciples started to believe that Jesus was, in fact, risen from the dead. And if you know the story, not only James was martyred, but most of the other apostles were martyred too. They were killed for their faith. They were killed for what they believed. And all, the simple truth, the simplicity of what they believed was that Jesus had 
risen from the dead and that they had seen him with their own eyes and that caused them to believe that he was the Messiah. And so Luke Johnson, who's a, another scholar from Emory University, he says this, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement that, the sort of movement that the earliest Christianity was. Something extraordinary must have happened. Or N.T. Wright, who you might know, who's an English writer who writes much at the moment, he says, That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. That's the only reason there can be for this extraordinary change of behavior in the disciples from those cowering in the upper room to those giving their lives for the risen Christ and paying, literally paying for it with their lives. And so, in summary, here are the four things that most scholars will agree on. Jesus was entombed by Joseph of Arimathea. Secondly, the tomb was discovered empty by the ladies, by the women. Thirdly, after his death, he appeared to many. And as a result of his appearing, fourthly, his disciples started behaving in an extraordinary way, believing that he was risen, and that ultimately led to all of them giving their lives for the resurrection, belief in the resurrection. That's the evidence. That's the historical account of what happens. This is what scholars agree on. So I put it to you, the big question is, what do you do with the evidence? What do you do with the evidence? Well, some choose to remain agnostic. Some choose to say, mm, can't make up my mind, and they live their lives like that. But countless millions have been forever changed by believing the evidence of the resurrection, that Jesus, His death, and His res resurrection changes everything. And through that event, we can know our God as Father, we can live in that reality, and our life can be transformed forever by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I put it to you, it is the most important thing that we will ever know as Christians. It is the event that changes everything. And I would put it to you that it is the single event that changes what we know in our community, that we do not have to just say we do not have a basis for what we believe. We have a very firm foundation of what we believe. This is what uh, William Lane Craig, this is how he puts it. He says this, The significance of the resurrection of Jesus lies in the fact that it's just not any old Joe Soap who has been raised from the dead. It's Jesus of Nazareth whose crucifixion was instigated by the Jewish leadership because of his blasphemous claims to divine authority. If this man has been raised from the dead, then the God whom he allegedly blasphemed has clearly vindicated his claims. That is why in an age of religious relativism and pluralism, the resurrection of Jesus constitutes a solid rock on which Christians can take their stand for God's decisive revelation in Jesus. You've got a great, great hope that you can proclaim boldly through your life to your friends, rooted in history because of what Christ has done. These four things you can quote to people. Say, no, we know Jesus was buried by Joseph. We know the tomb was empty. 
we know that, th that um, he appeared to many, and we know that his appearance transformed the lives of all that saw him. That's why we believe. This is why we have a great hope. I trust that you take these things, that you think about them. I will send you these notes if you like, and you can study these things further for yourself so that you too can testify of what Jesus has done and why you believe what you believe, that he's not dead, that he's alive, that he's risen, and that changes everything. Amen? God bless you. Let's pray.